Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner, and today we want to continue our discussion on neuroanesthesia and more so go into individual cases that we would do and some of the interventions and steps that we'll see in terms of how we're going to monitor and take care of these patients. So starting off with positioning, it's really across the board here with neuro cases. You can have a prone position, a lateral position, a sitting position, a supine position. It's really all over the place. It really depends on the location of the operative site on the head itself. Oftentimes, we do see a sitting position. If this is the case, you really want to make sure, and really with all these positions, that the head is neutral so that you are going to allow that venous drainage to occur and not cause a backflow of blood from the venous system into the brain and cause an increase in ICP. Especially in the sitting position, we want to watch for venous air embolism. Most sensitive monitor, we've said this before, is a TEE. You can also use a precordial Doppler. And you really are listening for a mill wheel murmur. I will give a shout out and props to whoever actually knows what a mill wheel murmur actually sounds like. <laughs> but I honestly don't know what I'm listening for if I'm listening for one. But at least, you, at least you can get that correct on a test that you're listening for a mill wheel murmur. Uh, you can also have a CVC catheter. Uh, technically, you're supposed to place one if you're going to have the patient in a sitting position. It's not always done, but it's one of the reasons that we do that CVC is so that we can aspirate air if there is a venous air embolism. You're really going to see this with that dramatic drop in entitled CO2. Uh, you're going to place the patient here on the left sideline position, trying to trap that air in the right atrium, and then we can aspirate it out with our CVC. If you do suspect a venous air embolism, turn off your nitrous. If you're using any, you don't want that to expand anymore. If you're in the prone position, and these cases can be very long, you want to make sure when you flip them back over that you're not just extubating without ensuring they have a leak around their cuff because you have all that edema and swelling that occurs in the upper airway. So kind of going off of the positioning part of this, let's talk about the Mayfield head clamp. This is something that you'll frequently see with these neuro procedures. So this is basically a contraption that holds the head in a specific position. It's going to be very stimulating to the patient when you are securing it. So you're going to want to manage this so you don't have a drastic increase in your ICP. Usually you'll see people give just a propofol bolus just before they're going to secure the pins. You could also give more narcotics or increase your gas, but propofol is just a really quick on and off. And so this is something that you'll usually see given right before we set up the Mayfield head clamp. You should know other stimulating parts of the procedure that you're going to want to manage. And so obviously with your DL, this is something that you'll have already given your uh, induction drugs for. And so this is something that shouldn't really be something where you see a drastic increase in the stimulation or ICP. Again, placing the pins during a craniotomy when they're actually pulling off the bone flap, that's going to be very stimulating. And then at the end, when they're actually pulling out the skull pins, that's something, again, that you'll want to manage with either an increased narcotic load gas, or you can give some propofol there as well. You're going to want to be very careful on your emergence. This is another area that could be very stimulating for the patient. And so this is something that you will want to manage so that they are very comfortable as you're going through the emergence part of the procedure. 
The actual procedure is not all that stimulating. So again, it's important that you are familiar with the steps of the procedure just so that you know when these different things come up that you can quickly manage them. But overall, this shouldn't be a very stimulating procedure. In terms of managing all of this, sometimes it's easier just to come up with a plan beforehand of what you want to give as far as your relaxant, your volatile gas, your narcotic drip, if you're going to use fentanyl or if you're going to use another narcotic, what pressers you're going to use, and then select one thing to change as you move through this procedure. If you keep a steady baseline, you know the patient is asleep, you know that you've scrambled any amount of cognition, you're treating their pain. If you have all those bases covered, and then now you can treat the hemodynamics with just slight changes to one variable or another. So make sure that you have a really good plan going into it. And then again, as you are proceeding through the case, you can just make little tweaks here instead of trying to kind of reinvent the wheel here with the anesthetic plan that you have set up. As far as monitoring goes, usually you will have either motor or sensory evoked potentials. You'll want to discuss with the monitoring tech before the procedure about your anesthetic plan and then discuss with them about how much volatile anesthetic you're going to want to use, if you can use propofol, narcotics, those types of things, and then just have clear communication with them. Say you need to treat something in the middle of the procedure, you need to give a large bolus of propofol or turn up your gas. It's important that you just are clearly communicating with that monitoring tech so that they are aware of what you've just done and then how that will affect their monitoring. So now let's talk about cerebral aneurysms. They're most often found around the circle of Willis with the anterior communicating artery and the anterior cerebral artery being the most common sites that this occurs at. In terms of the symptoms, it's usually asymptomatic and is more so found through screening. Uh, if there is a symptom, patients usually complain of a really bad headache. What it is, is there's this spot of weakening in the vessel wall and it bulges out like a balloon. So you have a, a small neck area where the vessel starts to puff up and then it expands into this big balloon-like structure sticking off of the vessel where blood is able to push into. And the risk here is that it would rupture and then cause hemorrhage into the brain. In terms of the risk of this aneurysm breaking, let's just for a second look at what pressures are affecting this. So we obviously from the inside of the vessel have our cerebral perfusion pressure that is pushing from the inside outward of this lumen. And so when you have this aneurysm sticking off of the vessel, the higher the perfusion pressure, the more pressure from the inside of the vessel pushing and trying to rupture from the inside this aneurysm. On the other side, you have your intracranial pressure, which is pushing back against the aneurysm and trying to contain it from rupturing and, and it's trying to push it back into the lumen of the vessel. So hopefully that makes sense. It's kind of competing back and forth your perfusion pressure, and then your ICP. So we call this your transmural pressure, and it's basically your MAP minus your ICP. So how do we treat this aneurysm? Often it's done by clipping or coiling endovascularly. And with an endovascular technique, these patients will be put on aspirin and Plavix prior to the procedure. Again, we just don't want anything to clot off when we're doing these type of endovascular procedures, so that's why they're put on these. If it's a smaller aneurysm, usually they'll place a coil up into the aneurysm, and then the area doesn't get a lot of blood flow, and will kind of die off, and we don't have to worry about it again. If it's a bigger aneurysm, they'll place a stent and almost block the blood getting into that aneurysm itself. They'll also usually put some coils in when it's bigger, but they'll need that stent as well. So during these procedures, it's important that we keep the systolic blood pressure between the 120 to 150 range. If it's too high, then we'll increase the risk of bleeding. But if it's too low, we'll increase the risk of ischemia and then a vasospasm, which we'll get to here in a second.
You really want to limit the increase in BP during the stimulating parts of the procedure. Tanner's really already talked through how we would manage some of the different stimulating parts of these procedures. So same kind of situation here, especially with induction, is really the main one that we don't want to cause SNS stimulation. A subarachnoid hemorrhage can occur if one of these aneurysms rupture. So signs and symptoms of the hemorrhage are going to be a very, very bad headache, like the worst headache they've ever experienced, nausea, vomiting, photophobia, and a dramatic increase in ICP due to the fact that we're having all this blood now filling into that CSF space and then is then going to limit the amount of CSF that can drain. So there ends up being what we call an obstructive hydrocephalus. So it's really this idea that we're limiting the amount of CSF that can drain now with all this blood hemorrhaging into this site, but also we're gaining all the volume of this blood into the CSF area, which is going to increase that pressure. So depending on the amount of blood in the brain, the patient may be obtunded or awake when they come in. And so you need to secure the airway. It'll depend how emergently we need to secure this based upon their neuro status when they come in. Generally, we're going to do a general anesthetic plan with neuromonitoring. And again, we're going to try to limit the SNS stimulation so we can use esmolol or betalol, remifentanil infusion prior to our induction, just trying to get that patient not having that SNS stimulation. We want to maintain the cerebral perfusion pressure throughout this procedure. So we are maintaining this map. And you're going to really talk to the surgeon prior to the procedure. What are the goals for your carbon dioxide level, your map level, et cetera, and kind of have a plan of where the surgeon wants things to be so that you can communicate with him or her if things aren't going as planned. I would also have blood prepared and ready to infuse in case you do get too much blood loss with these procedures, especially if they've already ruptured and you have that hemorrhage occurring. You want to have blood prepared in order to keep that patient's hemodynamic system stable. All right, something else I want to talk about that Cole touched on here is a vasospasm and then how do we treat that. So this is something that can occur even three to five days after a procedure. The thought here is that the spasm is initiated by release of free hemoglobin and other products along with calcium channel involvement. And so the problem here is that you're going to have a constriction of cerebral arteries. This is going to lead to ischemia to the cerebral tissue. We talked about ischemia earlier causing more edema and then further ischemia in that downward spiral. So this is something that could be at risk here with that immediate constriction of the cerebral artery and then the ischemia and then all the other subsequent problems that follow. You're going to want to try and maintain your cerebral perfusion pressure. This isn't a perfect analogy, but in my mind, we know that when we're treating a laryngospasm, you want to have positive pressure. Similarly, with the vasospasm here, you're going to want to keep pressure moving through this area of spasm. So you'll try to maintain your cerebral perfusion pressure. If a spasm occurs from aneurysm rupture, you can treat with triple H therapy. You can make the patient hypervolemic, increasing their CVP to greater than 10. Usually you'll see people use albumin instead of a crystalloid. You'll want to cause hemodilution, so your hematocrit, you can get that to around 30%, and then hypertension, so 20 to 30 millimeters of mercury greater than the patient's baseline. Again, this is all going to basically cause pressure there through that area of spasm. And you can also do this to prevent a spasm. This is somewhat controversial as far as using the Triple H therapy ahead of time for prophylactic reasons, but this is something definitely that is used for a spasm to try to correct and maintain oxygenation to these different areas of the brain. 
Nemotapine is a calcium channel blocker that is used to increase collateral circulation. This is something that's injected right into the area of the spasm. This is going to cause some pretty severe hypotension, so you may need to run some Neo to keep the systemic blood pressure elevated to a normal level. Last thing we want to just touch on because it's such a differing procedure than something that you will typically see is an awake crany. We're just going to really touch the surface of this. There's a lot more involved here, but just so you get a picture of kind of the process of an awake crany. You'll do this when we want to monitor the neurofunction during the case, so you'll want the patient communicating. Usually the patient will go off to sleep with a general LMA. You'll get an art line, get your IVs. You can get the Mayfield head clamp placed, and then you can do the craniotomy here all while they have that LMA. And then for the next part of the procedure where you actually want them to be communicating, you can go ahead and remove the LMA, and they can proceed with the procedure. Once the tumor is removed, you can go back to sleep during the replacement of the bone flap and then the removal of pins. So that's really dependent on the surgeon and the overall anesthetic plan there if you're going to keep the patient awake there or if they're going to go back to sleep for that part of the procedure. Hopefully this is a good overview of some of the specific things that we would do with neuro cases. This is quite an involved topic. Obviously, we did not touch all the things that you'll need to know or the management things that you can do during a case, but hopefully this is just something that you can use to help refresh and understand these key concepts as you do these neurologic cases. Mm-hmm.